What's the latest story out of the fictional Bois Sauvage, Mississippi? I write about people like the people I grew up with and like people in my family. And so I think there's real worth in being around the kind of people that I write about. Jasmine Ward will be here to discuss her new novel, Sing, Unburied, Sing. Why five new books about Darwin now? The sample we have here that we look at in the review is representative in some ways of the more readable books. David Dobbs will be here to talk about the latest takes on the theory of evolution. How do you go from writing a best-selling high fantasy YA trilogy to a standalone novel that breaks all genre definitions? In order to write a book, you have to have this passion to write this particular book, and I don't have a lot of control over what idea is going to attract me and make me passionate. Kristen Kishore will be here to talk about her new book, Jane Unlimited. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Jasmine Ward joins us now from San Francisco, where she is on tour for her new novel, Sing, Unburied, Sing. Jasmine, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So this is an exciting moment for you because the book came out, I think, was it September 5th? And already getting great reviews and long-listed for the National Book Award. Yes, yes. Which you won for your first novel, Salvage the Bones. Does it bring you back to that moment? Yes, it does. I don't know. I mean, I'm of course I'm overjoyed, right, that I that I was long-listed um, for seeing. But then I also remember um, the amount of stress, you know, that being. I guess, long-listed or, you know, on one of the finalists for this award brings. And so um, so I've, like, rediscovered that, right? Because, like I said, like, I'm happy that that I've been long-listed. But, but then you worry, right? And you, you know, wonder if you'll make the next cut. And, <laughs> you know, and then if you make the next cut, then you <laughs> wonder about what will happen on the, you know, on the awards night. So... So yeah, it's great, but also a little stressful. Right. Stressful, but in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> and that novel, Salvage the Bones, that won the National Book Award in 2011. Mm-hmm. But you took a detour after that novel. And I feel like you're like becoming a multi-hyphenate writer because you, you edited an anthology last year called The Fire This Time. You wrote a memoir, Men We Reaped. Can you talk a little bit about sort of why you moved away from fiction, a little bit about those two books, and then what brought you back? I mean, I've always been fascinated by creative nonfiction, so I always knew that it, that you know that, that there were some stories that I had to tell that I needed to tell in that form. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, like the most important of those stories was the story of my, you know, my brother and my friends and my cousin. So after Salvage the Bones, um, after I finished that draft, it just seemed like the right time to try to tell that story that required, you know, that I tell it using creative nonfiction, you know, that I write the memoir. And I wrote it, but creative nonfiction doesn't come easily to me. It's something that I have to work really hard at, you know, in order to, I guess, even with shorter pieces, right? Not just like creative nonfiction book length work, but even shorter essays, mm-hmm. they take a lot of time. I mean, it's not as if my fiction doesn't take time too, but there's something about writing a first, like a rough draft of fiction that is, it's easier than than writing creative nonfiction for me. So anyhow, like I told that story, you know, I, I wrote my memoir 
And then I just encountered so many voices. There were so many, you know, younger writers or newer writers coming up who were saying, I felt like really essential things about race and about America. And so then that's why I further detoured and edited um, the anthology of essays and poems about race in America right now. But at the same time that I was actually working on fire this time, I was also writing the rough draft of Sing Unburied Sing. So, um, so yeah, so I, I think, you know, as I was working on, you know, the fire this time, I wanted to um, return to fiction. Like, I wanted to be, you know, in a fictional world with characters. I wanted to be in that space again. And so I dove back into fiction. Men We Reaped was about six young African-American men who were in your life as close as your brother who died. Did you think about approaching it through fiction? Briefly. I mean, it would have been much easier for, in some ways, it would have been easier for me to fictionalize that and to write that story as a novel um, because, you know, then I wouldn't have had to deal with all the fallout that I dealt with in my personal life Mm -hmm. with, um, you know, people that I wrote about. Men We Reaped was problematic for some people in my family and in my community, and I wouldn't have had to do that, to deal with that, but I I felt like the only way that I could be truly honest about what happened was by writing, you know, that story as a memoir. Um, and I, I don't know, I just felt like the only way that I could truly honor the young men was by making them into characters, you know, in the memoir and and, and writing, you know, a, re, a true account of what we what we lived through. You know, I wanted to use their names. I wanted to, you know, use like specific, you know, characteristics and details of, about them. I just felt like the the memoir was the was the right way to do that. Was the hard part, I'm sorry to go so deeply into this, but it's interesting to explore the differences between fiction and nonfiction. For some people who are natural nonfiction writers find it terrifying to make things up. But it sounds like in this case, was the difficulty sort of laying out those facts or was the difficulty the personal component to it? Yes, it was definitely the personal component. You know, there's a battle on every page mm-hmm. where I was thinking about what 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 actually happened, um, you know, like assessing the truth and then figuring out how much of the truth would make it to the page and then what I would withhold because I was also thinking about, you know, the people that I was writing about, right, who were still alive and, and the effect that, you know, that my writing would have on them. And so every page, you know, like I had to make some sort of decision, okay, well, I'll tell this, but I have to keep, I have to hold this back. Mm-hmm. That was really difficult, and I also think that you know that I write about a lot of um, a lot of painful events, right? And um, and, I, and one thing that I've learned about myself and my process when I'm writing creative nonfiction is that I I'm not the bravest when I'm writing, especially a, a rough first draft. I tend to write around the pain, you know, like I, mm-hmm. I, I avoid it, I shy away from it, and I sort of circle it. Right. Um, instead of confronting it head on. And so therefore, it, it takes me multiple drafts to come to like a good place in my creative nonfiction where I'm looking squarely, you know, at, at, at whatever 
painful thing I'm writing about. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's another reason that writing creative nonfiction is really hard for me because I, I, I avoid in my writing. And so, you know, it's up to my, my friends and my, you know, my editor um, to read what I've written and to really push me towards, you know, writing about these things that um that I'm avoiding in some ways. In this book, in Sing Unburied Sing, like your previous fiction, you said it in a fictional place, in Bois Sauvage. Tell us about that place and, and why you choose to set your stories there. Well, I think that Bois Sauvage is an idealized version of my hometown, perhaps, and the surrounding areas. So my hometown is this like small town um, on the bayou, on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, called Delil. You know, it's very rural. Um, you know, there's a, a, a core black community there. Many in that core black community are working class and poor. And then, of course, it's in a beautiful place. And I think that that all those factors combine to make it into a place that nourishes the characters in some ways, but also at the same time savages them, you know, mm-hmm. like it threatens them, it bears down on them. Um, and... Uh, you know, I feel like there's a puzzle in places like that. You know, I, I, I just like I feel like I don't fully understand my hometown. So maybe that's why I wanted to, you know, write this fictionalized version of it so that perhaps I can understand it a little better, understand how it affects me and how it affects all the people who live there and have lived there. You move back to Mississippi. Is that important to you, to, to your work, to be there to be in that setting? In one respect, it is, because I write about people like the people I grew up with and like people in my family. And so um, I think there's real worth in, you know, being around the kind of people that I write about, hearing the way that they speak and, you know, watching the way that they move. Like, I think that that keeps me honest, mm-hmm. I think. Like, I have a complicated relationship with the place that I'm from. Because on the one hand, I can see the value in living there again in, in the hope that it helps, you know, lend some honesty and urgency to my writing. But at the same time, it's still Mississippi. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, and there's much about Mississippi, about politics in Mississippi, that is really problematic for me. How much has it changed from the place that you grew up in? some ways it's changed a lot especially after Katrina it's become a little less rural Mm -hmm. I mean even though like you know for someone from New York it would still be you know entirely rural right but for me it seems less rural because a lot of people like moved north you know away from Pascashan away from the Gulf after Katrina and so you know they settled you know in my town so it, it feels a little more crowded. When I was growing up there, it also, you know, like in the late 80s, mid-80s to late 80s, and then into the early 90s, we experienced the crack epidemic. And now, meth is everywhere. Hmm. And there's no longer a crack epidemic where I'm from, but there's now a meth epidemic. And meth, you know, unfortunately, the kind of Um, effects that it has on people who are like battling that addiction. I mean, it's changed people, you know, it's changed behaviors. um, 
I don't know. I feel like it's, you know, one effect of the drug is make, makes people more paranoid. You know, I'm definitely seeing that. And I think people, you know, very young people, I feel like, you know, people who are, you know, young men and women who are in their early 20s, like battling meth addiction. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't know if that was the case um, with the crack epidemic. Um, and it's everywhere. So that has definitely changed, too. Okay, without going too much into the plot, but just to give us a little teaser, and we'll end on that, tell us what this book, Sing Unburied Sing, is about. Okay, Sing Unburied Sing follows a family from the Mississippi Gulf Coast up into the heart of Mississippi to to the Delta, to Parchment, as they journey to Parchment Prison to pick up one of the members of the family from the jail. But at the same time that it's like, a novel about a road trip, right, about a journey. It's also, in some ways, because in some ways the travelers, as they journey north through Mississippi, in some ways they're journeying back into the past, into Mississippi's past, into the past of this country. So in a nutshell, that's what seeing is about. Well, I think that will certainly pique people's interest. So I will leave it to readers to find out the rest. The book is called Sing Unburied Sing by Jesmyn Ward. It's just been long listed for the National Book Award. And of course, Jesmyn won the National Book Award for her earlier novel in 2011, Salvage the Bones. Jesmyn, thank you again for being here. Thank you. David Dobbs joins us now. He reviews this week in the book review five books on Charles Darwin, and he is also the author of a book on Darwin himself. His own book is Reef Madness, Alexander Agassi, Charles Darwin, and the Meaning of Coral. David, thanks for being here. My pleasure. I'm taunted to talk to you about Coral and and Darwin, and hopefully we'll get to that at some point. But but you reviewed five books about Darwin, other people's books in this week's issue. So we'll we'll start there. I'm going to just go through the titles of these books quickly for our listeners, and then we can talk a little bit about four of them, and then I think go really more deeply into the main one that you write about. And that book is The Evolution of Beauty, How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World and Us by Richard Prom. So before we talk about that book, quickly, the other ones are Darwin's First Theory, Exploring Darwin's Quest to Find a Theory of the Earth by Rob Wesson, Darwin's Backyard, How Small Experiments Led to a Big Theory by James Costa, Collecting Evolution, The Galapagos Expedition That Vindicated Darwin by Matthew James, and finally, Purpose and Desire, What Makes Something Alive and Why Modern Darwinism Has Failed to Explain It by J. Scott Turner. You start off your review by saying it's not unusual to have this number of books about Darwin come out at a given time. Tell us a little bit about Charles Darwin in books, the numbers. Yes, five books is just a a tiny spoonful of Darwin uh, from the stream that comes out uh, every year. I looked all this up, and there are around 160 books a year presently published on Darwin. There have been about 7,500 or more published about Darwin since he wrote The Origin of Species in 1859. So there's one every 2.3 2.3 days lately. And so this is, let's see, five books would be, oh, about uh, 12 days worth. It, but 
I chose this, the, the sample we have here that we look at in the review is representative in some ways of the more um, readable books. A lot of those books, of course, are very academic, but for popular readers, this is a, a reasonable sample of the kind of thing you'll get every year. There's one, Scott Turner's Purpose and Desire is one that this happens fairly often. He's attempting to add something, not to completely disrupt Darwin's theory or the Darwinian theory of evolution we now use, but to add something to it. He feels that today's mechanistic neo-Darwinism, as we call Darwinism these days, needs to find room for the agency or the desire that Turner sees driving most life forms. And this is everything from the uh, plant's desire to reach the sun to desire to, for food or new spaces and so on. This is going to run into a lot of skepticism because it's precisely because it's not very mechanistic and it, it attributes evolution to agency, which is something that most evolutionary biologists would see simply as an expression of other needs. I found it a really interesting book. I, as I said in the review, it's a, it's a good read. He writes very well. He's a very engaging writer, and it's a strong pitch, but I'm not quite buying that we need to revise neo-Darwinism that way. But it's, it's a lovely read, and others will probably disagree with me on that. I want to pause you there for a second to explain what do we mean by neo-Darwinism? Well, neo-Darwinism, it's to sort of recognize the development of Darwinian evolutionary theory over the last 170 years since Darwin published his theory of evolution through natural selection. So it incorporates what's called the modern synthesis of the mid-20th century, which found a way to essentially reconcile Darwinian theory that came straight from Darwin with Mendelian genetics. The genetics, in most people's view of evolutionary biology and neo-Darwinism, is what that's the final proof that mm-hmm. Darwin had it right. It's the mechanism by which selection works. So when we speak of neo-Darwinism, we're, we're really speaking of a, a full-fledged modern Darwinism that incorporates all the latest science. So you won't mistake it for an early form of Darwinism. For lay people, I think we can usually consider them more or less the same. <laughs> Since you mentioned early Darwinism, let's go to another book that seems like a natural leap here, Darwin's First Theory by Rob Wesson. Um, what was his first theory? Darwin's first real mature theory was his theory of coral reformation. And this is something that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. But Except in your Wesson, book. <laughs> uh, yes, I wrote a whole book about this, actually, called Reef Madness, as I think you mentioned up front. And Darwin was a geologist mainly when he got on the Beagle. This was his main interest. He took a couple of thousands of pages of geology notes on the cruise and a few hundred of zoological. He was far more interested in geology than he was zoology at the time. And he was reading Lyle's book that was such a radical view of the earth that saw the earth as constantly changing rather than reflecting one static form. And this colored his view of everything he saw on the Beagle trip. And most especially, it colored his view of geology. He was absolutely fascinated with geology. And when he was on the west coast of South America, a huge earthquake occurred. 
lifted parts of the ground three feet that you could see the change evident. And he happened to be there to see it. Places he had seen a week before now looked different. They were three feet further out of the water and so on. So he got to thinking about how all this works. And he was looking at the charts of the Pacific and how the coral reefs out there looked. And the coral reef problem, as it was known in the 19th century, was one of the biggest controversies in science in Victorian England. And so he wanted to cut his teeth on that. He came up with a new theory about how coral reefs form. This was brand new. And his theory was that they formed as islands sank into the sea. It's called the subsidence theory. And when they first started to sink, a coral reef formed around their edge. And when they sunk further, there was an island surrounded by a lagoon and then the coral reef. And finally, when the island sunk completely underwater, you just had a round coral reef, an atoll. This was a a brilliant insight that he took home. And Charles Lyle was so pleased with it, he actually danced around the table and uh, when he told him at dinner. And then he published this book very soon after his return. He, he was working on it on his way back. So this is his first substantive theory, and it was, a, it was a very deductive theory. In other words, he had this idea before he even saw the reefs. The reefs confirmed his idea, and then he came home and published it. So it anticipated, it's important because it anticipates in two ways his theory of evolution through natural selection. One, it's the same sort of mental process. He has an idea, and then he looks for evidence and builds a case around the idea successfully in both cases. The other way it anticipates it is because he's answering a question, why do the quarries look like that? By looking at how they may have changed form slowly over eons in response to environmental pressures. So it's a it's a template mm-hmm. for his theory for evolution for natural selection. And it's his journey that Rob Wesson both recreates and follows on foot in his book, Darwin's First Theory. And he does a lovely job of weaving Darwin's historical journey with his own. It's, a, it's, it's quite a nice read and brings alive a, a theory that I, that I think is overlooked in Darwin's work and explains a lot about how he worked later. All right, let's stay with the journey at sea. And the next book is Collecting Evolution, the Galapagos Expedition that Vindicated Darwin by Matthew James. What's this book about? Well, this this book is about this one particular trip that a legendary field naturalist, Rollo Beck, took in 1905 to, to 06, so about a half a century after Darwin visited the Galapagos, and collected all sorts of things, uh, wildlife there from the islands, that basically brought into science a, a lot of raw material that could be looked at to test what Darwin had concluded from what he saw in the Galapagos. This is a book that is not even aimed at a uh, necessarily wide popular office. It's at a Oxford University Press, a very good press, but distinctly a, an academic one. It's, it's very colorful. Beck is a colorful character. There was a lot of drama on this. There were a couple of deaths, a lot of psychic angst because of the isolation and the hardship they went through. Mm -hmm. And Rollo Beck himself is a very interesting character. So for people who like expedition stories, there's an extra star. 
And likewise, if you're particularly interested in Darwin, this, the book goes from a three or four star book to a five or six star book, I think. Well, let's hope all the people who would read these books are at least to some extent interested in Darwin. The last yeah. book <laughs> is kind of different, I think, in, in terms of its uh, the way it's structured. Darwin's Backyard, How Small Experiments Led to a Big Theory. And I like this on the title on the front cover. It says, including do-it-yourself experiments. And this book is by James Costa. Did you do any of these experiments? <laughs> it's a really charming book. It's a wonderful idea that when I first saw it, I sort of thought, uh-oh, this is going to be sort of devicey and too cute. But his writing is very good on how his descriptions of Darwin's experiments at home, which haven't gotten a lot of attention in books of popular science, are very good, and they show how what he was doing was colored by the social milieu around him and by his own thoughts, and how they followed up things he'd done on his on his you know global expedition. And it's this picture of this lively kind of messy house in which you're doing experiments on potatoes and peanuts and bees, barnacles, and the add-ons at the end of these chapters are actually quite charming. There are, some of them are very simple things, and others uh, experiments you can do to crossbreed beans or something, and others are just observations. This sort of combination of seeing Darwin do the work and then getting a chance to make an observation that he made, I, I found very alluring. It's a really enjoyable book and an unusual one, a contribution to the Darwin literature. All right, let's turn to the the final book and the one that you discuss at most length in your review, because it sounds like it's an important book, um, and that is The Evolution of Beauty, How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World and Us by Richard Prum. Tell us what that forgotten theory is to start. Yeah, I, I think this book is a big deal and will be seen that way. So what Prom is taking up is what he called in an academic paper Darwin's truly most dangerous idea. He's making a play off of a different book written by someone else, Daniel Dennett. And in Prom's view, his most dangerous idea is his theory of sexual selection. Now, people may remember from biology that the main force at work in in evolution in Darwin's theory is natural selection in which traits are selected because they're they make you more fit for your environment. So in the in the beak of the finch, the evolution evolutionary pressure causes finch species on the Galapagos to change the forms of their beak with incredible rapidity, as described in the wonderful book The Beak of the Finch. And this is a selection for fitness. That's natural selection. But there was another thing that intrigued Darwin immensely and that he had at least as much trouble explaining. And that was, why are some birds distinguished not so much by something like a beak, and this goes for other animals too, but by the ornamentation and beauty of of them? Why are some animals covered with ornament and distinguished by it and what is the root of beauty? Why would you have this? And he sees this, Darwin saw this in a lot of species around the globe, some of them mammals, but most distinctly in birds where it's the most eye-catching to humans and where it's also often accompanied by extravagant, elaborate rituals of courtship where the male tries to woo a female. 
in Darwin's eyes, this could not be explained as a uh, a result of pressure for fitness, because some of these things were very distracting, the big tails of a peacock or a bower bird, or the uh, investment in the time to build these bowers that bower birds build, and then create an entire courtship ritual around luring the female, inviting the female into the bower to examine this artwork right. that the bird has made. Often much more flamboyant and prominent in the males than in the females. Yes, this was a distinctive thing in, in birds and some other species. The, the, the males were the ones more ornamented, and it was the male's place to sell himself as an aesthetic experience, a source of pleasure to the female in order to win the right to mate with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this, in Darwin's eyes, could not be explained. He, he really struggled with it, and it was the main and most difficult part of his second book, The Descent of Man, his emphasis on sexual selection was dismissed by a lot of, or downplayed by a lot of his biologist friends. What he was arguing, it's, everyone accepts that sexual selection happens. The question he, he explores and that Prum explores is whether sexual selection is a force that's independent and sometimes contrary to selection for fitness. So there's selection for fitness, and Darwin argued, and now Prum is arguing much more well-armed than Darwin was because he has 140 years of science to draw on, that there, that sexual selection, selection for beauty and pleasure, is an independent force driving evolution that sometimes works in contrary to the selection for fitness. In, in the world of evolutionary psychologists and theorists, how big an impact will this book have and, or is already having? It's a little hard to say. There, there have been reviews here and there on it. There's, uh, some of them like the book a lot. At least one hated it. A lot of his attacks are on um, kind of evolutionary psychology that tells just so stories about things like permanent breasts and so on. They, they give explanations that aren't satisfactory to prom. So he, he's, he's mounting a fairly pointed argument and one that frankly is potentially extremely disruptive because this carries all the same baggage and threat in some ways that it did when Darwin proposed this 140 years ago. One thing it threatens directly is the adaptationist view, which sees all significant traits that are under active selective pressure as being selective for fitness. Mm-hmm. It, in some ways, it calls into question the whole selfish gene view of the centrality of genes in human evolution. That's the Richard Dawkins. Yes, exactly. And this is the case because what part of his argument here is that, and he doesn't quite He's not emphatic about this, Mm -hmm. but he's partly making an argument that culture itself, in the form of sort of consensus and the evolution of female choice, culture itself can become an evolutionary driver, a, a selective force. And there's a conversation between biology and what's going on in genetics 
and culture, which is not based so much in genetics. Now, people can and will argue over this for, they already have for decades, and they probably will continue to. But Prum's book constitutes a, a particularly well-developed, powerfully argued assertion mm-hmm. that we need to fundamentally change how we view all this and to accept sexual selection as a really strong force that it, it, it affects not just individual choices, but that has helped create human culture. For instance, he sees much about sexual relations and the relation between men and women as created through this coevolution between female choice and male's appearance and behavior. He looks at different things that he offers different pieces of evidence that males have changed since we split with the apes and in many ways that we have. It sounds like there's still some evolution that needs to take place, though, in accepting these more feminist implications of Charles Darwin's theory. (laughs) This will meet some stiff resistance. All right. David, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Pamela. David Dobbs is the author of several books, including Reef Madness, Alexander Agassiz, Charles Darwin, and The Meaning of Coral. And this week, he reviews five books about Charles Darwin. Kristen Kishore joins us now. She is the author of a new young adult novel called Jane Unlimited, and she is also the author of a trilogy of YA novels, The Graceling Realm, which is Graceling, Fire, and Bitter Blue. Kristen, thank you for being here. Thank you. It's an honor. Your previous books, you can describe them as high fantasy, and this is something very different. How would you describe Jane Unlimited? I suppose I would describe it. It's a bit tricky to describe, but as a sort of kaleidoscopic cross-genre novel. Mm-hmm. It also at least had roots, has roots in the choose-your-own-adventure uh, conceit. It, it's honestly pretty hard to describe. I mean, I could give a little, the little blurb that I give. Well, that's why I was making you describe it, because I find it hard to describe. <laughs> well, okay, let me put it this way. We have our main character, Jane, who is a young woman, um, an orphan, and she arrives at this mysterious house on an island where she's been invited by an acquaintance. And she starts to quickly get the sense that something strange is going on here. People are acting weird. People are asking her questions about her past life, and these people have never even met her before. Even the dog is acting kind of strange. And then at a certain point, she has to make a decision. Who is she going to follow? Is she going to follow the housekeeper? Is she going to follow her acquaintance? Is she going to follow the dog? There are five different people that she can follow to try to get to the bottom of what's going on in this house. And at that point, the book splits off into five different decisions, five different stories from that point, and each story is in a different genre. So there is a mystery story, a spy story, a horror, a sci-fi, and a fantasy story, and all the stories inform all the other stories, and I hope kind of give the reader a sense of opening and possibility and not just a sense of sheer utter confusion. 
it's a, clearly it's a complicated narrative. You you're doing a lot of challenging things at once in this book. Was it a hard book for you to write? Was it harder than the previous books that you'd written? You know, every book is equally hard in my experience. I think that if I had tried to write this book first, rather than, you know, the book that I actually did write first, it would have been impossible. I needed to write, I needed needed more experience, Uh, I needed experience with a more complicated narrative before I could have written this book. So I think this book was ultimately more difficult, but it didn't feel more difficult at the time. One of the interesting experiences for me as a reader of your book is that this is, as I said, it's a young adult novel. My 12-year-old daughter read it um, and uh, before I did. And then uh, she read it again before I did. And so she was full of knowledge and I think rather contemptuous of my confusion. She wanted to discuss this book way before I was ready and, you know, and couldn't believe that I was still trying to kind of, you know, grapple with it, that, that she would say, you know, are you on the part in which someone loses a soul and Charlotte finds one? And, you know, what does it mean? So that was a really kind of interesting experience to read it alongside her. And I asked her if she got more out of it upon a second reading, because I've only read it once. And she said she absolutely did. And I'm wondering if you thought about this book as something that was kind of a made sense to to kind of immediately turn back and and reread it and if you thought about it in those terms as when you were writing it well i don't think i w- it would ever be fair for me to expect that of any reader there are so many books uh, i you know, have reread so few books in my life and it's one of the true pleasures to reread a book but there's always something else i either want to read or am supposed to read so I would not, I wouldn't expect that of readers. But I am absolutely delighted to hear of readers who have who have decided to do that. It is certainly one of those books, or you know, there are movies like this too, where yeah, I think immediately of the Usual Suspects. You know, you go back to the beginning, and of course, you're going to see things. You're going to see the clues mm-hmm. that you didn't recognize. But you must have reread at least two books in working on this book because you refer to them in sort of in an afterword. And it, I think they are clear to those readers who've read those books, the parallels. One of them, of course, is Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, and the other is Jane Eyre. I wasn't sure whether you were going to say Jane Eyre or Winnie the Pooh. Well, Winnie the Pooh, of course, is in there. I, I'm assuming you went back and you reread those and you worked yeah. them in. And, and why? Well, I wanted to get the feeling of Rebecca. Also, just I love Rebecca. I love the way it's written. I love the structure of it. It's, it, it is possibly the book I have reread most often, and I've also listened to the audiobook a couple of times. Jane Eyre, I, I, did, I did reread as well. Once I had this mysterious house, this isolated house, and this orphan who was, uh, you know, a young person of, of little means, Arriving at this house, then there I had the convention of Jane Eyre or of Rebecca or of uh, Mary Stewart's uh, incredible novel, Nine Coaches Waiting, which is another one that I reread but didn't really refer to specifically. I just have always loved those books, this, this, this sort of unwanted, um, isolated person that finds themselves in this isolated, strange, mysterious place. And, um, you know, adventures ensue, and, and in the process, they're trying to learn about themselves and who they are and what they want. So I, I, I reread these books just so that there could be fun little 
links here and there between my book and, and those books. For you, though, there were a lot of decisions to make as a writer because you have this moment where a bell rings in the story early on. And Jane, as you said, has a choice. She can follow any number. I think it's four or five different characters. And she, you play out each of those characters. For you as a writer, I mean, I could, you could have taken this in so many different directions. Yeah. Uh, were there a lot of, you know, sort of starts and stops in this process in which you spun things out and sort of said, you know what, I don't like where that's taking the characters? I don't like the way that's playing out? So what I did was I planned it out beforehand. I I plotted it and mapped it beforehand just because I anticipated that it was going to become so complicated and difficult to have all these moving parts and to be trying to figure things out while I'm actually writing it. With, With this book, more than any other book I've worked on, Anytime I would make a major change in any part of the book, the ripple effects that that would create through the rest of the book were really, really huge. And I, and I actually I created a dilemma for myself in revisions. It just it became very hard to change anything. And I sort of anticipated that before I started. So I mapped it out as best as I could. There were some things that just didn't end up feeling right and didn't end up working, so I changed them. But for the most part, I had my five different outcomes that I was trying to get to, and then I sort of had to lay them each on top of each other to make sure they still work. Mm -hmm. Everyone has to be in the right part of the house at the right time. I can't have someone in a different part of the house in another story, because why would they be? The only reason for anything to change in each story is because this main character, Jane, has made a different choice about where to go. You know, and I hear myself talking about it, and I'm not even sure I'm being clear, and it's partly because the actual writing of the book was such a messy balancing act and, mm-hmm. and involved so many charts and, and so much going back and trying to right. check, okay, let's follow this character through. Are they consistent? Let's follow this character through. Are they consistent? Yeah, it seems like one of those books that it would be a very freeing and exciting as a writing experience, yet then as an editing, quite difficult to go back and to make sure to check for consistencies and inconsistencies and lapses and and repetitiveness. And did you have a lot of sort of friendly readers helping you go through the narrative? I had the kindest readers. When I think back on those first couple drafts that I gave to people expecting them to be able to understand and and comment on and the really, really helpful responses I get, um, I am, and my, my editor has, oh, she is so patient. I, I definitely had a lot of really kind helpers with this book. Before I let you go, I would hate myself if we didn't talk about the Graceling Realm trilogy <laughs> just a little bit. Those books you wrote over, I think, a period of eight years, or the books came out over a period of eight years. The last one came out in 2012. And as a reader, when I heard that you were doing something different, my initial reaction, if I'm being honest, was disappointment because I thought, but how could you leave that behind? Was it hard for you to leave Graceling behind? It wasn't hard for me to leave it behind just because Bitter Blue was so hard and so dark and really had a lot to do with my my own life. And so there there were ways in which it was a relief to, to let that go and turn to something a little different. 
Um, I will say that I don't know that I have completely left the Graceling realm behind. I could certainly write more in that realm. She's um, opened it, the door. She's leaving <laughs> the door open. Right, right. The back Excellent. door is open. Yeah. The three books were Graceling, Fire, and Bitter Blue. For listeners who have not read this trilogy, to my mind, it, it really is. It's one of the best fantasy trilogies, YA trilogies that, oh, that okay. I've ever read. And and my daughter, who just read them, I think, had, had the same reaction. Um, and she's read many books in, in that genre. You left that genre behind in this book. So even if you don't go back to Graceling, do you want to return to fantasy? Do you see that as kind of your your home as a writer, your your place? Or is this new genre breaking, bending, Jane Unlimited kind of more the direction that you want to move into? Well, you know, I didn't really leave that genre behind because there is a fantasy story in Jane Unlimited. And I have to tell you that when I got to that story, which is the last one, and it was time to write it, it was so much easier to write than the other stories. And I realized, oh, wow, I really have sort of been working this muscle a lot more than I've been working yeah. these other muscles. I mean, without without giving away the story, I do want to say that as a reader, that last realm, that fantasy realm, was the one where I thought, now this is a world. I want to know more about this world that she just introduced here at the end. Well, you know, I, I've always wanted to write a lot of different things, and I have written a lot of different things. It just so happened that the first thing I got published was Graceling, and, and Graceling brought out, I thought, I thought I was just writing this one fantasy novel. I had no idea I had more in me, but then Graceling brought up these ideas that made me then want to write Fire, and again, I wrote that book thinking this is going to be the last fantasy, but again, that book brought up ideas that, that caused me to write Bitter Blue. So it really is, you know, what it's a little bit out of my control you know, as, as I doubt I need to tell you, in order to write a book, you have to have this passion to write this particular book. And I don't have a lot of control over what idea is going to attract me and make me passionate. Uh, so I do have, you know, I have another book in revisions right now that is a mystery. I have other types of things I want to write. I know my readers know me as a fantasy writer, but I think of myself as a writer and we'll see we'll see what comes all right. Well, that sort of sounds like Christian Unlimited. Um, <laughs> so thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Kristen Kishore's new book is called Jane Unlimited. It is a standalone, at least for now, YA novel, and it is out this week. Alexandra Alter joins us now to talk about what's going on in the world of books. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. All right. Sales figures, right? Yes. There have been some really big books this fall. That's always the case. But probably the biggest nonfiction book that everyone was anticipating was, of course, Hillary Clinton's new memoir, What Happened? And this, of course, recounts her experiences from the 2016 campaign and its aftermath. And the big question everybody had, kind of people in publishing and people in marketing and political pundits, was... Are readers and voters really does anyone really want to relive this does anyone exhausting want to go there? and volatile election that we all just barely got through? 
And the answer seems to be yes. The sales figures came in and from the first week, and according to Simon & Schuster, the book sold more than 300,000 copies in its first week on sale, which is a really astonishing figure. More than 167,000 of those were hardcover copies, and then the additional ones are digital and audio. And it's apparently, according to the NPD book scan analysis, the biggest first week sales for hardcover nonfiction in the last five years. Hmm. So that's pretty substantial. And it's also interesting to kind of compare this to her last memoir, which came out in 2014, and that was called Hard Choices. And that sold around 86,000 print books, so far fewer. What about Living History? That's a great question. So that one actually was her biggest debut yet. That one sold 438,000 copies in its first week. So it's interesting because with that one, everyone, you know, was interested in Hillary's story. But what they really wanted to know was, you know, her Monica side of Lewinsky. the Monica yes. thing. And that came out in 2003, so that was pre-ebook, and those 438,000 copies were all print. So that was a really enormous sort of sales week for her. It's so fascinating because Hard Choices was her, you know, her big kind of policy That's book right. and, and her, her a memoir of her years as Secretary of State. But when it comes to Hillary Clinton, it seems like what people really want to know is like, the real inside. Exactly. What was she thinking, feeling, why kind yes, of side of Yes, and she her. has this reputation for being very evasive, of course. And so I think people were expecting more of the same when it came to this new book. And critics have been very kind to it. I mean, they've they've said this is absolutely her most revealing book yet, as, as her publisher promised, but people were sort of skeptical of whether that would come through. There was, of course, a great review in the New York Times by Jen Senior where she called it a score-settling jubilee and very much worth reading. I want every book to be called a jubilee exactly. or more books to be called a jubilee. <laughs> what a great word that is. And then from Yes, score-settling isn't bad either. I, I mean, I'll read it. And then Politico wrote recently about it and said, this is a quote, the real headline to come out of this book, a far more engaging read than the problem-rich account of her years as Secretary of State, Hard Choices, is that she has definitively answered the question that has been asked about her for more than a quarter century. Who is she? So it is interesting. This is, I mean, I think a lot of her supporters wish she could have revealed more of herself during the campaign, but at least she's she's done it now, and her publisher's thrilled. Yeah, well, she also, debuted at number one on the New York Times yes, bestseller list. Yes, and I think it's also noteworthy that number two was Unbelievable by Katie Turr, which is her memoir about covering the Trump campaign. She's, of course, an NBC News correspondent, and that, again, I think speaks to this persisting hunger among readers to sort of get behind the scenes of that election, even though it seemed like every twist and turn was covered breathlessly in real time and everybody sort of sighed when it was over. But apparently there's still an appetite. They've got me reading. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Alexander. Thanks for having me. My colleagues Greg Coles, John Williams, and Jen Salai join us now to talk about what we're reading. Hi, guys. Hey, Hi, Pamela. Pamela. All right. Let's start with John because you're doing one of our favorite things, the obit read. Yeah. Pamela and I, if we weren't working here, we would have our blog, Obituary Reads. And last week, <laughs> Death uh, Watch. <laughs> Death Literary Watch. <laughs> and last week, or maybe the week before, J.P. Donlevy died, the 91-year-old Irish-American author who is really known best for one novel called The Ginger Man. 
So I've been reading that because I've been meaning to for many years, and, and the obituary tripped me into it. I'm actually going to quote not from the book, but from Dwight Garner's great appreciation of Don Levy that he wrote for The Times, in which he said, In his spectral wit, Don Levy could resemble Samuel Beckett. In his delighted lustiness, Henry Miller. In his damp and scattered wordplay, James Joyce. An American who lived most of his life in Ireland, he spoke to the past century's intellectual and moral dislocations. Like a greased pig, he eluded critical capture. I love that. It's great. The Greased Pig. Yeah, it's a great line. <laughs> it's a very body book. It is very comic and very funny and Joycean for sure. It was written mid-century. But it's also very dark. I mean, the, the lead character who's this man named Sebastian Dangerfield is an American student living in Dublin on the GI Bill. And he's violent. You know, he's not just sort of a, a good time guy who goes out to the pubs and gets drunk and, and makes puns. He's violent towards his wife. He's morally very slippery. But the the language is really the reason to read it. And it is very funny. And I mean, there's really no plot in this book. It is all about the language and the voice. It's really about this character sort of evading landlords who want back rent and getting into really uh, tight spots and bars and then sort of, you know, trying to emotionally escape the women in his life. So you don't read it to see what happens next. You just read it to be sort of in Dunleavy's company. It's singular. And I would definitely recommend reading it. And and I there are a bars named The Ginger Man. I think it started in Texas, and now there's one in Murray Hill in New York. There's even one in Greenwich, Connecticut, I think. Yeah, and on the, <laughs> so it's a chain now, yeah. a big chain. And on the wall, at least in the one in New York, there's one of the more famous paragraphs in the book about how basically if it's not one thing, it's another, but said in a much more colorful, <laughs> colorful way. Greg, you've got a couple of things in front of you. I do. You know, I haven't really landed on what my next book will be. And so I'm doing what I do in those situations, which is kind of casting about and, and reading about in things. Um, so I turn to collections. I've got two collections in front of me. One is fiction and one is nonfiction. The fiction is Tobias Wolff's collection, The Night in Question. I turned to that because it's back to school time, and my son's freshman English teacher in high school assigned one of the stories from this collection in his class. And so um, the, the story Powder, and uh, he came home talking about that, and I said, we we own that book. <laughs> what, what grade is your son in? Uh, he's, he's a freshman. In oh, Actually, okay. can I interject sure. here? Hopefully it's not getting too personal to say that both you, Greg, and I have sons named Tobias, and and which I think is a, a kind of a literary affectation in terms of uh, <laughs> Are they both named kids. after Wolf? And there was, for a period, um, another writer who is also one of our critics who had a Tobias on the same floor at the Times, uh, <laughs> son. so anyway. Yeah, so my son Toby is not named after Toby Wolf, although of course uh, when we named him, we we were aware of the overlap. Um, and and I'm a big fan of Tobias Wolf, who's probably best known still for his memoir, This Boy's Life. But he's a terrific story writer. His collected stories won the Story Prize maybe eight or nine years ago, blowing away some some great competition. Um, he's just you know he's built. A, a real solid career as a story writer over the years. And this one, The Night in Question, has what's maybe my favorite Tobias Wolf story. It ends with the story Bullet in the Brain, which is about a book critic um, who is... In a, <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> it doesn't end well. It, it doesn't end well, but it ends beautifully. Uh, he's in a bank at the time that a, a stick-up man comes in, and the stick-up man is full of cliches, everyone down on the floor, that kind of thing. And the, the critic can't stop himself from kind of smirking at all of these cliches, <laughs> <laughs> drawing the wrath of, of the guy who, who ends up shooting him. And then the whole last half of the story... It takes place in that flash of a second as the bullet is traveling through his brain and firing off all the synapses, and it brings him back to a day in his childhood playing baseball on the sandlot 
when one of the boy's cousins from the South is in town and is asked what position he wants to play, and he says, shortstop, it's the best position they is. And that that <laughs> phrasing, they is, huh. just resonated. It became um, kind of the basis of this guy's love of language through his whole life. And it, it's almost this That's kind of great. poetic wow. and. This uh, actually makes me think of that scene in Take the Money and Run, the Woody Allen film. Oh, you know, right, where right. There's also like a, a writerly <laughs> problem, you know, because he writes down a note and hands it to the teller. And it's, it says, it's the grammar I've got a, is wrong. I've got a gun. And he says, what is this? I, I, a gub. What is a gub? <laughs> <laughs> it's also bringing, it's bringing to mind for me the scene in Ratatouille where the food critic is sort of brought back to his childhood through the food. He cut this like very crusty, cynical food critic takes a bite of the rat's dish. It's and it, like, very him, much like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. what movie does it make you think of? <laughs> <laughs> um, then the other collection that I'm, I'm reading about in right now uh, is, came out a couple of years ago. It's Renata Adler's collected nonfiction. It's called After the Tall Timber. And um, because I'm a, a bit of a masochist, I've been greatly enjoying um, a piece that she did that just lays into the New York Times. Um, she, <laughs> she talks about um, s- some of the errors that we uh, made at the time of the Iraq war. And she talks about the the famous uh, Wen Ho Lee series of, of articles that we did. And so she's, she's quite scathing about the times as an institution, but she's, and anger. And she used to she work had worked here. here. She, she, mean, she did work here. Of... And anger is one of Renata Adler's great virtues as a writer. She's kind of gloriously angry when she <laughs> wants to be. And it's a, it's a very scathing piece, but she's also very funny on the genre of the New York Times correction. Um, the kind of the, the punctiliousness of our correction. We don't know anything about correction. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Um, so it's, um, you, you know, I, I read half defensively saying, but, the t- you know, <laughs> in terms of our well-meaning as an institution um, and um, also half ready to, to be persuaded by her as, as I read along in this. Right. So um, so those are the two books that I'm reading right now. Jen has another cheerful entry for us. <laughs> I know. Well, it, was, it was interesting because yesterday I was talking to John about this, and I said that I was going to talk about a book that I had chosen because it was lighter reading, but I meant it in the sense that it was less physically heavy than the other book, which <laughs> yeah, that's the other light. book is yeah. just hard to bring on the subway. So I'm reading that one at home, Simple Justice. But the one that I've been reading on my commute now is The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, and it's subtitled title is A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. So it's basically his argument, even though it's mostly historical, but he does make very explicit that he has an argument, is that uh, the American government played an active role in segregating neighborhoods Mm -hmm. in the United States by guaranteeing loans only for developers who would only agree to sell to white people. Basically, it's and like the so, prequel in a way to Evicted, right? Right, the Matthew and, Desmond book, and and yes, and it's also connected. There was a book last year um, by Mitchell Dunier about ghettos, mm-hmm. and so Richard Rothstein explicitly says that this is partly how certain neighborhoods were kept very poor and depleted of resources, essentially by the government actively acting on behalf of segregationist interests. And this um, is a newish book. Was published this is a newish book, exactly. And it was published earlier this year, and it was just long-listed for the National Book mm-hmm. Award. And I'd had a galley sitting around, and I'd been meaning to read it for a while. So I figured it's also coincides in a way with the Simple Justice book, because where 
one lives often determines where one's children goes to school. And so all of these things are connected. Is this the kind of thing that was an open secret and um, he's just kind of putting the pieces together? Yeah, I mean, I think people have talked about it before, but I think the argument has often been in terms of residential and real estate segregation, that this was sort of just private interests. Right, right. Mm-hmm. That and, wasn't codified in the... Right. And he's saying, no, this was actually explicitly codified because often these private interests n- either needed or wanted federal guarantees for the money that they needed to to do these things. And so, you know, for the government to explicitly say, and it was often couched in terms of words like racial harmony. I mean, you know, the way that it was sort of described was, oh, well, people feel comfortable living with people of their own race, so this is why we're doing this. It's a really, really sort of shocking, outrageous history. That's a very serious subject, but I wish that George Carlin were alive and could riff on the idea of calling it racial harmony because (laughs) just that use of language is so ridiculous. The harmoniousness thing is very, yeah. Luckily, real estate interests no longer have a place in our government. Right. I, <laughs> right. I only see a copy of the book review in front of you, Pamela. But I that know. Can't this be is the... my shame week. Um, I, I showed off last week too much, and now I'm being punished because I think I came in with like four books in front of me. And this week, um, I'm still reading two of the books that I was reading last week. Um, and it's embarrassing because people are going to be like, those are books that you should just get right through, but I haven't. Um, so I'm finishing up Katie Turr's memoir, Unbelievable, which um, it is pretty unbelievable. I mean, I think that it's very well titled because what she does in that book, as I mentioned last week, is really brings you back to the moment so that you're re-experiencing things that happened in the 2016 election that were sort of historically unprecedented. And you now, of course, we, we've become kind of inured to some of it or, you know, it's just hard, hard to experience shock on a daily or hourly basis. But she, She's very funny about the, the famous penis debate, the Marco Rubio small hands comment. And she goes on a little riff in that book where she says, can I say penis on air? Do I have to call it mini Trump? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. We always remark on the penis episodes. And um, so, yeah, so that that book I'm finishing up. And then I've started A Perfect Spy by John le Carré. You know, this is the book, I think, where he deals with, in a fictional way, his father. But I'm quite early on in it. So you can expect to hear me talk about it more in the next six episodes. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks, Thanks Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.